Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the Life Church Canton podcast. My name is Jared Van Vorst, and I'm your host for the show and one of the pastors at Life Church. And uh, this is an exciting episode because this was our first time back in the building since COVID, uh, where we invited people to be part of the service. They got to sit in different parts of the building, and uh, it was an exciting time. And I think you'll hear that excitement once the sermon begins. But uh, first off, I just want to thank you for listening to this podcast, for supporting Life Church if you've been doing that, uh, whether through prayer or financially. And uh, I want to ask you to consider uh, continually uh, blessing Life Church if you'd like to give. Uh, I'll give you some information for that in the show notes. Uh, but you can also just go to lifechurchcanton.org/give. And then make sure you subscribe to this podcast as well if this information has been helpful for you to grow in your faith. Uh, We finished off a series in this sermon called Sticking to the Gospel, and Pastor Daniel gives a message about growing in the gospel, growing and maturing, and he's going to be speaking primarily from a passage in the book of Hebrews, so we hope you enjoy. Uh, But other than that, um, if you would like to be part of Life Church and, and and start coming to Life Church. We, our doors are open. We're we're ready to go again, and it's exciting and fun to be a part of. So, um, if you'd like to do that, you're certainly welcome to join us this coming Sunday. Amen. Oh, oh, glory to God. Praise Jesus. Amen. I'm with you, brother. God is here. Amen. Amen. Life Church is excited to see you, to see your faces, where at least your eyes at least. Amen. Oh, man. I could spend all time just looking at this. This is a joy. Bless God for this. Bless God for this. Our text this morning, Hebrews 11. Hebrews, I'm excited. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. Through 14. I'll be reading now the New American Standard Version. And here's what it says. Now concerning him, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though at this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he or she is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Let's pray. Oh God, what a great joy to be among the saints. What a great joy to be around my brothers and my sisters in fellowship. Thank you, Lord, for this time. Now, God, we pray that your spirit will use your word, that the spirit of the Lord will use the word of the Lord to reveal the Lord himself, that all the things we do today may be done to the glory of God. And all who are redeemed by God said, amen, amen. Please be seated. Such a joy to be with you this day. Six weeks ago, we began this series called Sticking to the Gospel. I would have never imagined six weeks ago that I'd be sitting here looking at you, so I'm glad for that. Amen. 
Amen. Amen. This series was created in order to unpack the gospel and its implications for our lives. In this series, we explore three aspects of the gospel, if you will, what we've been saved from, the just penalty of our sin, who we've been saved to, to God, to each other as brothers and sisters in the Lord in a new fellowship, and what we've been saved for, good works that are meant to display the goodness, the glory, and the grandeur of God. Additionally, we narrowed in to those good works and unpacked three important good works, namely evangelism, that we have been called to share the gospel, to know it and to share it. Then we've been called to justice, the good work of justice, to, to show the world the justice of God, that he is a just God, and we seek justice for all people because all people are made in the image of God. And then we've talked about mercy, the hesed of God. Christians, more than anybody, know the mercy of God, and we give that mercy to other people. Well, today, as we close out this series, my hope is this. My hope is that God's word has encouraged and empowered you to live out the truth of the gospel, that you have been empowered to see each other and to engage each other in light of the truth of the gospel, that we would be a people who desire to grow in the fullness of the gospel when it's uncomfortable, and perhaps even especially when it is uncomfortable, and that we would be a church that not only sticks to the gospel, but continues to mature in the gospel, understanding and applying it correctly. This brings us to our text this morning. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11 through, 5, through 14. The writer here gives us some important warnings and important instructions. But before we dig in, let me see if I can give you a little bit of context for this text. Written in the first century, the primary audience of this letter are Jewish Christians, Christians who had converted from Judaism and now into Christianity. But apparently they have become complacent in their faithfulness to God. They were even considering abandoning the faith altogether and returning back to Judaism. Their passion that they once had had cooled off, preferring comfort over their commitment to God. So like a good pastor, the author of Hebrew pens this letter, to exhort the people of God to hold fast to their confession and the commitment to Christ and to each other, and that they would grow and mature in their understanding and application of the gospel. And how does he plan to do this? How does he go about encouraging them to stay fast in the truth? By holding up the supremacy of Christ and his exclusivity from any and other religion or worshiper. He does this by reminding them that Christ is superior to all and exclusive from all. In light of this truth, the author warns his readers, don't shrink back from God. Don't fall away from Christ because he is our lifeline and he is our only hope for salvation. He warns his audience to be faithful, to persevere in growing into the fullness of the gospel. And our text this morning, this day, finds us in one of the five important warning passages in the book of Hebrews. The author warns his writers about the danger of spiritual immaturity. He warns them in a way that echoes all of the other warnings in Scripture that spiritual immaturity might not be an issue of growth. It might be an issue of genetics that you might not be saved to begin with. In other words, spiritual immaturity could be evidence that you're not a Christian. 
The warnings in this letter are always relevant and hard to hear, and perhaps even more relevant in our time. Now, in order to unpack this text, three observations that I have for us that will help us navigate this text. First, we're going to see in verse 11 the cause of spiritual immaturity. What causes it? What's the origin of this spiritual lethargy? Secondly, we're going to see the critique of spiritual immaturity, the evaluation, the assessment of it. What does it look like to be spiritually immature? And then finally, we're going to look at the cure, the correction, the fix, the remedy for spiritual immaturity. Ready to dig in? Amen. Verse 11. Concerning him, him who? Jesus. Melchizedek, if you will. This mystical feature and figure, figure that we see throughout the Old Testament. He starts to unpack the weight of all of who Jesus is. He says, concerning Jesus, we've got a lot to say to you, but it's hard to explain. Not because we can't explain it, but because these Christians have become dull of hearing. The author of Hebrews starts this message by rebuking his audience. That's a way to lose your audience quickly. But because he cares for them, he didn't mince words. He rebukes his audience and he points to the dullness of their faith, the dullness of their spirituality as the reason why they cannot comprehend the deep truths of God. He says to these Christians that you have become unwilling and unable to learn and therefore unable to grow. The term here, you have become, it assumes that at some point in life that they had all, they were not always dull of hearing. It assumes that this is some transition that has happened. It assumes that at some point they were keen and ready to do the things that God had called them to do. You see, it appears that despite their initial excitement and enthusiasm for the things of God, a certain sluggishness and slowness of faith had crept in. The author now fears that they are no longer willing to work out the deeper implications of the gospel and to respond to God in faith and obedience, proving that they were truly never Christians to begin with. That's heavy. It says you become dull. It emphasizes a sense of settled complacency, that perhaps they thought that they had arrived, and perhaps they had become super comfortable in their spiritual immaturity, so much so that it was difficult for him to teach them the deep things of God. The author was now having difficulty expressing the fullness of the gospel, not because he could not, but because they would not listen. They had become hard of hearing and unresponsible and unresponsive to spiritual things. Before we go too far, I have a question for us. Have you become dull to the gospel? Have you become dull to the hearing, the living, and the sharing of the gospel? It's a hard question. Like the Hebrews in our text today, has your passion to know and live out God's word as it waned? Life has a way of doing that to us. I know for me, one of the ways that I can tell that I am becoming dull to the word of God, to the gospel of God, is that I begin to coast. I stop being intentional about critiquing my thoughts through God's word. I stop holding every thought captive and submitting it to the truth of God's word. This brings us to our second observation, the critique of spiritual immaturity. Look with me, if you will, in verse 12. The author here zeroes in into the immature state in which he finds these Christians. 
He gives us a critique, an assessment of their spiritual state. He says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have need of milk again and not solid food. He expands on what he means in verse 11 by dullness, spiritual dullness. And he gives us a little bit more clarity about the state in which he finds these Christians. Now, we're not given a time frame for how long these people have been Christians. And I think that's a good thing. Because if he says that they've been Christian for 20 years, some of us who've been Christians for 15 years are like, whoop, I'm still good. But whatever the time frame is, they have been Christians long enough that they ought to have moved from being just learners alone to teachers now. He uses this Greek word didaskalos. It means to have authoritative teaching. It means that this is someone that is able to teach authoritatively because they have solid, sound, and seasoned understanding of God's word. This word, didaskalos, is actually used even for Jesus. It's used to refer to Jesus as an official title as the teacher. It's the equivalent of the Hebrew word rabbi, teacher, master, Lord, great one, one who I emulate. In fact, even in other texts outside of the Bible, this word can be translated as doctor. Think about that. You've been walking with God long enough that you are now an honorary doctorate in theology. Not just head knowledge, though. He goes deeper that this is knowledge that moves us into action. The author notes that these Christians had been taught long enough that they ought to have become teachers, professors, and doctors of the faith. But their unwillingness to learn and grow has resulted in arrested spiritual development. In psychology, we talk about arrested development. What is that? And that is the sense by which your growth has been stunted emotionally and psychologically. That the person has stopped growing emotionally. Their emotional IQ is that of a child. Or perhaps their psychological IQ is that of a child. They have stopped growing. These Christians had become stuck and satisfied in being in elementary school, relearning over and over the ABCs of the gospel with no desire to grow and mature in the gospel. Here we learn, as in other parts of the scripture, that one of the telltale signs of spiritual immaturity is one's inability and unwillingness to grow and therefore edify other people. After a certain amount of time, we would all agree that if you've been taught something for long enough, you at least should be able to share with people what you've learned and what you've lived based on that information. Now, here's what I'm saying. I am not intending to gospel shame any of us. It's not the goal here. Because like many of us, I too have experienced arrested spiritual development in certain areas of my life. That's the normal ebb and flow of the Christian journey. I wish it was you saved straight to heaven. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise Jesus, right? It'll get rid of all the other stuff we have to go through. But that's not the way it works. There's an ebb and flow. We grow. There are days, if you're serious and you're honest, that we're not as hot for God as we used to be. That's normal. That's not what we're after here, though. What's being addressed in this passage, though, is a prolonged arrested development, a prolonged lack of growth, so much so that these Christians were in jeopardy of abandoning the faith altogether. Folks, let me explain something. There is no standing still spiritually. You are either moving to God or away from God. There is no in-between. 
There is no half-stepping, if you will. You're either pursuing God or you're pursuing yourself or that other guy. The writer writes, probably with a broken heart, to critique and assess his fellow brothers and sisters, to see that their understanding of the gospel is remedial. But not only their understanding, they're no longer interested in living out the gospel. He doesn't give us the reason for it, but the context historically may point towards persecution, may point towards just the desire to be comfortable. In this state, the Christian doesn't yearn for the truth of God, even though they may be convinced that they are. This is true even for us today, especially in the current climate of unrest and divisions in churches. Folks, in the last four or five months, many of the pastors have had hard conversations, good, growing conversations, but hard conversations with dear brothers and sisters who we love dearly, with legitimate concerns, many. But I have to say, sadly, that many of these conversations are marked by the fact that many of us don't know the gospel. Many of us can't articulate the gospel. And even worse, some consider the gospel to be on par with their preference about a certain church culture or church tradition. Friends, the gospel is not what you and I say it is. Gospel is what God says it is. It's his gospel. It's his good news that he has given us. We don't get to define it for God. He's the definer, the designer of the gospel. The gospel is what God says it is. I have another question for us. Do you understand the gospel? And do you apply it daily to your life? This is a reoccurring challenge for us in Scripture. We are commanded over and over in Scripture to know the gospel, to teach the gospel, to live the gospel accurately. There are many passages in the Bible that reveal this expectation for us to grow in the gospel, to move from just being fed to now feeding other people, to move from consumer mentality to a contributor mentality. Amen. Now, to be sure, we are not all meant to be preachers and speakers. We all don't have the privilege to stand and share and explain God's word. But whatever our scale or setting might be, the fact still remains. We are all called to know, live out, and teach the gospel. We are all called to assist each other in our pursuit of God and living out the fullness of what it means to be gospel-centered Christians. This is why the author used the illustration of milk and solid food. It's intended here to drive home the point of what it looks like to grow spiritually, that spiritual growth is inevitable, should be for the Christian. It is not a suggestion. It is not optional. You must grow. Peter says it this way, you have been given the incorruptible seed of God. He uses agricultural terms to show that God's seed must grow, unless, of course, it isn't God's seed. This is what this writer is after. Physically speaking, milk is for the children, the infant. It's the diet of babies. Solid food is for the mature, those who have grown beyond the infancy stage. It's unnatural for a grown man to sit and drink Similac all day. 
So then the logic follows. If you find it weird and out of place for someone, for an adult, to have a diet that consists only of baby milk, then perhaps you should find it even more out of place and more weird for a grown Christian to exist only on milk. You should find it equally out of place to see a Christian who is stuck in the stage of infancy. Not because God hasn't given them the freedom and the ability to learn, but because they are just unwilling. Even more than it being weird and out of place, milk, baby milk for an adult, is harmful. It leaves them malnourished, emaciated, gaunt, weak, or even worse. The writer of Hebrews in verse 13, look with me if you will, says that everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness because he or she is an infant. What does he mean here, the word of righteousness? Well, this alludes to the gospel. The gospel is where the righteousness of God is revealed. Paul unpacks this in chapter 1, verse 16 of Romans. In fact, just a few weeks ago, I had an opportunity to share and unpack that verse. But what does it mean to be accustomed to this word, to be accustomed to the word of faith? Here's what at least it means. Those who are spiritual infants, those who live on milk alone, are inexperienced in living out the truth of God's word. The issue here is not so much that the spiritual infant doesn't have enough information. They have more than enough. The issue here is that he or she has not developed the skill to put the word of God to effective use in their life. It's less about cognition, more about conduct as a result of godly cognition. Spiritual maturity is not just concerned with having deeper understanding of God's truths. Those who are spiritually mature are those who have the will and the skill to put the gospel truths that they already know to proper and regular use in their life. The spiritually mature are not merely concerned with consumption of information. No, they are concerned with living out what they already know. Mark Twain, great writer, regardless of what you think about Huckleberry Finn, good author, gifted. He was asked at one time by a reporter because Mark Twain was a Christian. He says, Mark Twain, I assume he called him first and last name at the same time. He said, Mr. Twain, what do you make of all these hard passages in the Bible that you don't understand? And I love the response. He says, I'm not bothered by the difficult passages in the Bible that I don't understand. I am bothered by those that I do understand and I'm unable to live up to. Amen. Folks, if we're honest, if we're being candid with each other, you and I still struggle with the fundamental things of our faith. This season alone has proven that we still struggle with what it looks like to love our neighbor as ourselves. Amen. The very basic things that God has called us. What does it look like to be a church that truly loves your neighbor as yourself? We still struggle with those basics of the gospel. We still struggle with seeing each other as being made in the image of God, regardless of complexion, race, ethnicity, whatever, that all people have been made in God's image and therefore are worthy of dignity and respect because God said so. Those are the ABCs of the faith. Before we talk about Melchizedek and everything else, can we love each other? 
Mark Twain's response is an honest response. And this season has proven that. Can I ask you another question? Yes. What fundamental truths of the faith do you struggle with even now? Having been in the faith one year, two years, three years, five years, 10, 15, 30, what fundamental truths does God's spirit still bring to you? Perhaps how to love your wife well, how to love your neighbor well, whatever it is. Even as I study for this message, God's word worked on my heart and showed me areas in my life that I still need to mature in. Folks, it's a journey for all of us. Bless God for his word and for godly community that can hold up a mirror and show you where there's still need for growth. My desire is that we would grow. I want to grow, don't you? My pastoral heart is to see all of us become who God has made us to be. That we would grow in gospel grace and gospel truth. This brings us to our third and final observation, the cure for spiritual immaturity. The author here in this epistle gives us a pithy, a concise but yet powerful description of what spiritual maturity looks like. He gives us a blueprint to follow so we too can grow. Look at verse 14. But solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Let's unpack that. He starts off with this word train. This is what solid food is for. It's for those who have trained their senses. What does it mean to train your senses? It means that you are in an advanced stage of development because of teachings, experience, and time. That's what makes one seasoned. Teaching, education, information, experiencing that information over the course of time makes you a mature Christian. That you've been walking with the Lord, not just head knowledge, but heart knowledge and putting it to work daily. These are those who have been fully equipped by God's word for assigned tasks, such as the good works that he has prepared for us before time, Ephesians chapter 4. The word train here is interesting. The author here uses language of an, of an athlete who is systematically working well and practicing in order to be able to compete, compete well. The author here suggests for us that spiritual maturity can only be achieved by the regular and ongoing practice of putting God's work to use in our lives. The word train here is the Greek word gymnazo. It's where we get the word gymnasium from. Take your faith. Take your gospel walk to the gym. Work it out, if you will. I've been watching Pastor Nathan fat shame me for a couple of weeks now as he does burpees, right? He's doing like 3,000 of those things. What does it look like, folks, to, to do that intense CrossFit for your soul. CrossFit. I just caught that. Did you get that? Get that later. What does it look like for the cross to make you fit? It means to be conditioned, to be shaped, to be disciplined through training. Think of it this way. Every time you put God's word, word to use in your life, every time you obey God, 
It's spiritual exercise. It's a spiritual workout. You're working that muscle to respond to the things of God. The word of God is the only thing that can do this. It's the only thing that can exercise and build us up. Our faculties, our ability to make decisions, it's only gone through God's word. In fact, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 and 13 says it this way. The word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It cuts through to where the soul and the spirit meet, to where the joints and the marrow meet. It judges every one of our desires and all of our thoughts are laid bare before God, before whom nothing can be hidden. And before God, the one that all of us have to give an account for our time on this earth. You see, folks, it's the normal practice of those who are spiritually mature to train their thinking with God's word, to put it to practice daily, and therefore practice becomes perfect, or better yet, practice makes one mature. The regular training of our faculties by living out the truth of God's word that we already know is what causes us to be spiritually mature. Now, in contrast with that, in contrast to those who are spiritually mature, those who are not spiritually mature don't have time to change, to train their hearts, don't have time to constantly respond to the things of God, and so they are unable to distinguish between good and evil. It never ceases to amaze me how people who don't have time for God's word still say they hear from God. Paul describes spiritually immature Christians in chapter 4 of Ephesians, he calls them that these are the people who are easily tossed to and fro with every new wind of doctrine. He says that these are those who are tossed around and carried away by unbiblical teachings and philosophies. Why? Because they can't tell the difference. He says that these are those who are immature and have no substance, and so therefore they are prey to false teachings and false teachers. He also describes them in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, as carnal-minded people, not spiritually-minded people, people who are more motivated by their preferences than what the Word of God and the Spirit of God has to say. He calls these babies or infants. Final question. Based on all that we've covered, based on this passage, here's a question for you. Are you maturing spiritually? Remember, folks, there's no in-between. You're either maturing or you're regressing. And at some point, regression starts to look like you were never belonging in the first place. Are we growing spiritually? I want you to also notice something in this passage. Look at verse 14 again. You see the word discern? See it in there? Discernment. Here, this text teaches us that the passage, in this passage, the text teaches us that discernment is learned. It is not this mythical thing that certain super saints have. It's not just a, 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 an extraordinary two or three or four that have this gift. It is something that God gives. It's an access that all Christians have to be able to discern. It's something that God gives us. It is not this gift that only a selected few have. According to this passage, discernment comes through the regular training of our faculties through God's word. 
It's a gift that you already have in God. If you would nurse it, condition it, train it, take it to the gym, you will be able to discern between good and evil. The ability to discern is a muscle that must be trained regularly and intentionally. This is what yields spiritual maturity. This is what gives birth to maturity in the heart and soul of the Christian, that they are bringing all that they are into submission under God's word. My encouragement to us is simple. Let us be a people who know the gospel, a people who live the gospel, and a people who mature in and by the gospel. Friends, it is my firm conviction that every one of the points of contention that we have, every argument that we're currently going through, that all of that would drastically decrease, if not even disappear altogether, if we would train our faculties by the word of God. What would it look like to be a people who speak the same language? What would it look like to have agreement in God? The things that we could do in the kingdom of God. What we could do in this world to love and care for people if we were one sound in God if we put to practice the gospel truth that we already know. So let's train our faculties. Let's condition them. Let's exercise them so that we would be a people who not only know the gospel, live the gospel, teach the gospel, but a people who actually stick to the gospel. Here are my action steps. Have four of them for us. First, can we make sure that we understand and can articulate the gospel? I think it's helpful as Christians, as those who believe in God and thankful for his gospel, to be a people who know and can articulate the gospel. It may be helpful to walk through some of the sermons through the series and unpack some of the verses, keeping us honest, so do your own research, but also to be able to do it in the confines of community where people can speak into the richness of that text. Let's be a people who know and can articulate the gospel. Secondly, after ensuring that we understand the gospel, that we can comprehend and then communicate the gospel, I want to encourage us to ask a few questions, perhaps even just one question, of ourselves and of the people that we have around us. The question may go like this. Does my life show a true belief and growth in the gospel? Does my home life, my marriage, my parenting, my family, my friends, does this show true belief and growth in the gospel? Does my work life, my profession and my business life, does it show true reliance on God and true faith and growth in the gospel? Does my stance on politics, racism, sexuality, throw any third rail question in there? Does it affect that? Do people see me and see that I am gospel-centered in how I think about those things? Thirdly, let's practice training our faculties, submitting our thoughts to God's word so we can discern good and evil. 
You may even consider looking at the outline for this sermon online on version and see how I sort of trace this thought through Scripture. Do your own research. Keep the preacher honest. You hear me say that all the time. And then finally, let's actually stick to the gospel by reminding ourselves of it daily, by refreshing our mind, by having it wash over us. Because, folks, this world is full of all kinds of distractions that is intending to take your mind off of Jesus. Let's give it a harder time to take our mind off Jesus. And maybe you're here and you don't know Christ. You don't know Jesus. But here's one thing you do know through this sermon is that Christians are imperfect people. We are imperfect people who have received grace from a perfect God. And you know that on your best day, you miss it. You know that on your best day, you have never been perfect. And perhaps you've given up from searching for perfection, or maybe you are still on that rat race to think you can perfect what was never intended to be perfected. Wherever you are, let me introduce you to a perfect God who loves you perfectly. In the words of the old St. Augustine, God, you have made us for you, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Come to Christ now. Tomorrow is not promised. Perhaps you could pray this way. Whether you are a Christian or whether you are just becoming warm to the idea of God, Father, I need you to show me who you are. You may even say, I don't believe you're real, so show yourself to me. Speak to God in your own language. Ask him into your life now. And friend, if you pray that prayer, we want to hear from you. We want to walk with you. We want to answer your questions, but more than answering your questions, we want to introduce you to the answer, Christ himself. Let's pray. What a joy it is, God, to be among your people. This season, Lord, has caused many of us to be stunted in our spiritual growth. This season has robbed us of the joy of fellowship and perhaps has caused many of us to shrink back, to pull back, to fall away from our passion, our commitment to God and to each other. Spirit of the living God, would you fall on us even fresh now? Would you cause our hearts to hunger and thirst for righteousness? Would you create in us a passion, God, that is unparalleled by anything in this world? Let us be a people that show the glory of God by loving our neighbor, by caring for our neighbor, and yes, by sharing the good news of the gospel. And internally, Lord, internally here, even in Life Church Canton, may we be your church that knows the gospel, lives the gospel, preaches the gospel, and sticks to the gospel. 
Help us now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.